Tracking Red State Christian Nationalism. People across this country are hungry for a return to the Christianity that was active in the abolitionist movement. The Christianity, particularly among African American leaders, that was active in the civil rights movement. The kind of Christianity that is compassionate, that is loving, and that speaks the truth and does not shrink in front of power or money. This is Beliefs from Religion News Service. I'm Bill Baker. Reverend Angela Denker is a sports writer turned Lutheran pastor, writer, and speaker. She's a contributor to various publications, including Religion News Service, The Washington Post, and Sports Illustrated. Dunker's also the author of a forthcoming book, Red State Christians, Meet the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. Dunker joined producer Jay Woodward from her home in Minneapolis. Angela Denker, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. I've been looking forward to it. So we've asked you here, I understand you attended a mega church 4th of July celebration in Dallas, Texas, uh, just recently. Uh, what were you going to see there? You know, I had, um, in the midst of my book research, I had gone to the March for Life in 2018 and attended the Evangelicals for Life conference there. Uh, and spent a long time talking about uh, Christian nationalism with a member of the Ethics and Religious Leadership Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, Pastor Dean and Sarah, who's the pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, and in the course of our conversation, he said, you know, to really understand Christian nationalism, you really need to visit Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, just north of Dallas. And he said, make sure to go there on 4th of July weekend. So after that, you know, of course, I had to go check it out. <laughs> How could you not? Right. In the article, you were talking about the conversation you had with Dean and Sarah, and he introduced you to something he called gospel distortion as it relates to politics and nationalism. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, um, it was a term that I hadn't heard before. I've certainly, as a Lutheran pastor and as a seminary student, talked about, you know, these these questions that churches have about should they have a flag on the altar? So I've heard that talked about before, but gospel distortion itself was a new term for me. Dean was explaining it to me as this idea of Christian nationalism has become so strong in the SBC that it has threatened the teaching of the gospel of Jesus so that people are in a lot of churches learning more about American patriotism, about Christian nationalism, about the flag, about the military than they are about the story of Jesus. Do you feel like that's um, a new development in the last three years, or is that something that's been growing for a while? You know, um, I think so many of these trends in in conservative American Christianity, they predate Trump. And so it's not that Trump has brought this out of Christians, but rather that because Christians have had these trends for a long time, um, that is what led them to the support of a president who has a very strong nationalistic outlook. Let's go back just a second, and can you tell me what it means when we talk about Christian nationalism? Yeah, um, I know it's kind of a it's kind of a new term that people have been talking about a lot more, from you know, sociology scholars to pastors and religious leaders. It goes back to things like America is a Christian nation. Um, some of the talk that people have about you know our founders that that part of the founding of America was based in Christianity. Um, and you do see sort of some similar trends um, with the nation of Israel and this 
you know, Jewish nationalism. I haven't actually heard that talked a lot about, but I imagine that it's fairly analogous to um, some of the things that we're seeing in the United States right now. So you go to this, you go to the mega church in Dallas on the 4th of July. Can you tell me um, what's it like walking in? Yeah, you know, um, I'm not entirely new to, you know, 4th of July worship. Um, the thing that I think was most um, insidious in a way was just the ways that um, they talked about the military at Prestonwood and um, the ways that they talked about military sacrifice. And so there's this song that I went to worship both on Saturday night and Sunday morning at Prestonwood. Um, there's this song that they played with like a video montage of military members, you know, people going to be deployed, saying goodbye to their children, Iwo Jima, like all sorts of military footage. And there's this song and the lyrics will, uh, the lyrics were, we'll never forget your sacrifice. You know, the way that you live, the way that you died, there's no greater love on earth than this sacrifice. And it was um, very similar to the ways that Christians, particularly conservative Christians, talk about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so there begins to be this linking of what Jesus did on the cross in his sacrifice and the American military. And um, it's something that leads not necessarily to like support for veterans or programs or individual military members, but rather it lends to this um, almost idolatry of the military. That's interesting because Dean and Sarah in your article said something similar, right? He said, um, we have to be Christian first. If you're American first, Jesus will be at odds with you. Patriotism is not a fruit of the spirit. It's idolatry on the 4th of July. <laughs> Isn't that an incredible quote? <laughs> There's so much happening there. Um, first, you know, just just casually, let's pick apart the idea of being American first and Christian second, or Christian first and American second. Mm -hmm. This feels like it's sort of an old conversation right. and an old trope, right. but it's also a new one as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um as I said, this is something that's been building in American Christianity for a really long time. Um, you, we talk a lot in seminary and religious circles about something called Christendom, you know, this idea that um, the church is really part of a key part of the American social structure. So that the kind of heyday was in like the 1950s, where where you went to church, your church membership was as much a part of who you were as where you lived, your neighborhood, your job, where you went to church. And of course, um, Christendom, that idea, that linking of um, the church to American civil life has dramatically decreased since the 1950s, um, particularly in mainline denominations. Now, when it comes to evangelical Christianity, um, they're sort of seeing that decline of Christendom on a little bit slower pace, but also at the same time, I think uh, this is sort of a reaction. Christian nationalism is a reaction of a lot of people in seeing that decline of Christendom and thinking that if Christianity is not this central part of American civil life, then the church has failed. And I, so I think people like Dean and Sarah, people like myself are saying, that's actually not what it means, but the reason we think that is because of some of these trends like Christian nationalism. So it is an old rhetoric, and it does date back decades in um, American life. 
going back to the song, in your article you describe, uh, you're listening to the song at the end of the service. It's equal parts American exceptionalism and um, a lot of Jesus metaphors. You wrap up the article by saying, I stayed seated listening to the song, still thinking about the first commandment, my love for my country and my love for my God ward within me. What did you uncover about yourself in conflict there? Well, it was really powerful for me um, that I really kept thinking about the first commandment. Um, And of course, um, across the American Bible Belt, the Ten Commandments have really been revered. You know, they're on courthouses. And it just felt really ironic to me that in a place that wants to hold the Ten Commandments so tightly, um, that there was a huge break of the first commandment happening there. And it just felt like I was being asked to make something else into my God than to Jesus, because I know that um, God's not American. (laughs) Jesus is not American. Um, And so it felt very, it felt somewhat coercive. Interesting. So this is all in service of uh, larger themes that you've been chasing and you've got a book coming out. Tell me about your book. Yeah, thank you. Um, My book is called Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. It began actually in Orange County, California, where I was serving a large evangelical style um, Lutheran church during the 2016 election um, in a very conservative part of Orange County. And so watching um, the ways that the the national news came sort of to roost in um, conservative Orange County, which is still very heavily heavily Christian. Um, kids go to Christian schools. Not a lot happens on Sundays. Um, so I, you know, outside of church. Um, so I had pitched an idea about the 2016 election and Orange County to Fortress Press, who um then told me that they had been looking to write this book, Red State Christians, and they were looking for a writer who would understand the journalistic side of it, be able to report and tell stories and do interviews, um, but also a writer who would understand the theological and Christian religious implications. Um, And so for me, with my background as a sports writer and journalist, um, as well as a pastor, I kind of fit that. So then I embarked on my journey across America. And to be honest with you, um, when I began thinking about this book, I thought it would be, you know, really centered on telling stories and sort of dispelling stereotypes and giving um, Christian Trump voters an opportunity to tell those stories in their own words. Um, and when I went to the March for Life, I, d- I anticipated focusing on talking about abortion and how that played a role in the election. But then this conversation that I had in the midst of that March environment with uh, Pastor Dean it just kind of threw, it changed the whole course of my book. And it really made me realize that in the midst of creating the space for dialogue in this country, in the midst of dispelling rumors about Trump supporting Christians, giving them the opportunity to tell their stories. um, I also did in this book need to send a warning about Christian nationalism and the ways that it is in, in Sarah's term, uh, distorting the gospel. The book sort of serves as an oral history for Um, a lot of the dynamics happening around uh, being a person of faith, being a Christian in America at this time. What did you hope to find in the anecdotes and the stories that you, you gathered from the people? Uh, Well, when, 
you know, of course, whenever, whenever anyone sees my book, um, most of the time their first question is, is this book pro-Trump or anti-Trump? Um, and that's sort of the disservice that, um, we've done in the American media in a lot of ways is that we have centered everything so much on the person of Donald Trump. And so while my book as well has his name on the cover, (laughs) um, I, my book, I really, I really want it to be much more about America, um, than it is about Trump. And so my focus was really, um, telling stories from parts of the country that are not always um, exposed or told completely um, in the general media. I also wanted to um, conduct those interviews with the lens that I have as a pastor with a deep understanding of scripture, of Christian tradition. Um, and I, the number one thing that I wanted was for people to be surprised and be open to being surprised because our media has become so polarized that, um, we see a headline, we go to a news site, you kind of already know what to expect and what kind of stories you're going to get. And I wanted people to be surprised again about the hope and the unexpected partnership. One of them stands out the the story of Ariel Martinez, the Latino evangelical multi-site pastor in El Paso. Tell us about him a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so um, I knew that in the midst of my research for this book, I needed to go to the United States-Mexico border. Um, and I really wanted to go particularly to El Paso. Um, El Paso has been in the news a bunch lately. There's um, a lot happening there with uh, migrants coming over, with children being separated from their families, um, with people being placed into detention centers. And so El Paso is really ground zero for a lot of that. Um, and I went to a few different churches in El Paso. Um, Ariel's church is sort of the largest multi-site church. Uh, So it's um, based in Southern Baptist tradition, and he's actually um, a remote student at Liberty University. So one of kind of the under the surface um, themes that comes out in my book or things that you notice is that there's a lot of people who are attending Liberty University because of their extensive online course offerings. And so while Ariel Martinez um, may not fit the extremely conservative white Southern mold that people might think of when they think of Liberty University, um, he and many other pastors of color across the country like him are getting degrees from Liberty because of their extensive online offerings. So that's the first part. The second part is just really hearing from his first person perspective about um, the response um, to uh, political rhetoric about immigration, to Donald Trump in um, the Latinx community in um, El Paso in particular. And so hearing from him about um, that they have dreamers on their church staff, but that they also have people in their church who are very much saying, build the wall. And so he says as a pastor, you know, sometimes he wonders, do people in my church know that, you know, for example, Joe is a dreamer when they're saying that they don't they don't want DACA recipients to um, have these rights. And he also talked to about the fact that um, a lot of the border patrol employees are of Latino background. And so just the, I think one of the underlying themes of my book is just the, the sacrifices and the choices that people have to make across America that um, ideology doesn't sometimes match practice. 
And I think that we have to be more honest about that in um, understanding America. Um, at one point you quote him, and he's talking about kind of the way he's torn between a border patrol population, between a population that passes back and forth across the border, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, and his role in supporting that. And he says, it's tough because we support our country and our military, but America is not my allegiance. I've seen so many people in churches be torn apart because they think their allegiance and focus is to their country and not to God. And again, we're looking at that that strange hierarchy of America comes first or God comes first. And it's cropping up in all sorts of different places. Yeah, I think um, that that's a, you know, one of the positive things that I always say about the about Trump's presidency is that it's forcing America to answer some really tough questions like that one. Um, and I think for those of us who are uh, religious leaders, we have to wonder, you know, if, if we have taught so strongly um, this idea of American pride and allegiance to America, and we have not in the same way taught um, that allegiance to Jesus, that authentic gospel story of a savior who died and rose again and who died uh, for the sake of love, um, I think it's really it really causes Christian leaders to look in the mirror. And throughout my book, you know, I always say that the biggest villain in my book is not Donald Trump, but it is these predatory Christian leaders who have chosen power and money um, over the story of Jesus and the love of Jesus. That seems to be something that we're hearing a lot also in conversations regarding inclusivity, complementarianism. We're seeing a, a rise of a pushback against certain things like prosperity gospel and different ways that there has been a celebrity culture in Christianity. And the pushback seems like it's growing. And tell me, do you see the same thing? Absolutely. And that's one of the really exciting things, I think, is that um, we have been mired for such a long time um, in American Christianity in mourning the loss of civil religion. Um, And so where have all the people gone? Why are our pews so empty? Why can't we get more, you know, people to religious education? And I think the really exciting thing about um, what I discovered is that there, people across this country are hungry for a return to the Christianity that was active in the abolitionist movement. The Christianity, particularly among African American leaders, that was active in the civil rights movement. The kind of Christianity that is compassionate, that is loving, and that speaks the truth and does not shrink in front of power or money. So before we end, there's just one thing. Going back to Dean and Sarah and what he had to say about, if you're American first, Jesus will be at odds with you. There is a very vocal wing of Christian nationalism that tries to spread uh, an unfounded rumor that Muslim lawmakers are engaging in a, a stealth jihad to try and bring Sharia into a Christian civil society and undermine our traditions. And the core accusation is that they are placing their religion before America. Is that a contradiction that they're willing to examine, do you think? I'm really glad that you brought that up. I, I think that um, 
some people are willing to examine that, and that's definitely something that I want to write about. I live in Ilhan Omar's uh, congressional district, and so have been closely watching um, the attacks that she's received um, on the basis of her religion, on the basis of her decision um, to wear the hijab. Um, so I think that that is true across the board on so many levels. Um, when when American Christian leaders condemn um, Islamic extremist uh their treatment of women, the practice of purda, of separating women and men, um, just all the oppression of women that occurs in the Islamic world, um, we see echoes of that in fundamentalist Christian uh, Christianity. Um, so I really do think that fundamentalism is fundamentalism, and um, Christians especially need to be aware of that the things that they want to criticize about um, Islamic extremism are echoed in some of our churches and some of our traditions as well. Hmm. Angela Denker, thank you for joining us on Beliefs, and thank you for such an incredible conversation. Thank you. It was great. I hope to talk again soon. Our guest was the writer, Reverend Angela Denker. Her book, Red State Christians, Meet the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, comes out August 6th. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernardo Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at Fordham University Graduate School of Education. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thanks for listening, and please tell a friend.